Hi there, everyone. <laughs> Hi there, boys and girls. It's D. And hello to all the boys, girls, men, women, non-binary pals we may have. Um, I mean, and everybody in between. I was, We're super woke. Okay, this we way. we are very woke, but I was definitely doing a '90s <laughs> throwback where they only acknowledge the I know. two. I um, know what you were doing. It's fine. It's very MTV of you. I love it. Yeah. Uh, hi <laughs> hey we're just doing we should just come in and pretend like we haven't been gone for a while. i was like, like I'm, this is how i feel i'm like hey guys <laughs> how y'all doing like remember like you respond to text messages like a week later it's like like it's the conversation wasn't time sensitive right uh no we have been well let me let me let me let this me your sucks. Me leave first. me alone Light adulting is so terrible. No, no one this tells you. Specific year sucks. Everyone this year is terrible. Alone. Yeah, that's it. However, <laughs> the reason why we haven't been around is my fault. I, <laughs> I had like one day that I was like, no, can't do right. it. Yeah, well, well, like, you're you're forgiven because most of the time it's me. It is as of I am working full time and interning basically almost like what twenty hours a week. It seems maybe more. Um, I don't know your schedule anymore. I don't have to see you. In yeah, I don't know my schedule anymore. <laughs> <laughs> there, like I was leaving on Thursday, my uh, my internship, and she was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, I have some homework for you. So if you just get that done over the weekend, that's great. It's fine. Thank you." And I was like, oh, "Okay." She gives you sure. homework on your internship, and she was like, "Not homework, but you know, work to do at home." Oh, like yeah. she's like, "You could do this in in the meantime, in between time." She was like, "Here's this folder." And here's this, and here are these files. And if you could just reach out to these families for me and just call this and follow up on this. And hey, have you ever made a flyer or a poster before? Because I was really thinking about doing this for this. And I was like, I could do all these things. Yes. Thank you. And <laughs> meanwhile, so I don't even know is- if I'm going back to school. I've been in a fight with like the fast people for like months now. It's been great. I didn't know that. Oh my god! I call them like maybe every week, every other week, every month, whatever. I talk to them a lot um, because they have not submitted my paperwork to the school yet. Yeah, that's odd. Yeah, I'd fight them. They're they're literally like because of COVID, we work from home. Their phone system doesn't even work. Like it's really bad. Like when you call them, it's just static. It's been great. Thanks. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know what? Yeah. I don't know about school anymore, you guys. I'm gonna have to start all over again. I'm, I predict it. Uh, the great American higher education system you can't it. beat it. Uh-uh, it's it's in- incomparable, right? That's the word. Yeah, um, but my life is awkwardly an uphill battle. That's just everything in my life. It's fine. I'll figure it out. You will. Yeah. As most things we do, we are we are a resilient people. Yes. Amen. <laughs> and so we're back. Speaking of resilience, this is gonna not. Um, this resiliency is gonna be at the end. Like this for this case, I could say is gonna kill us at the end. There's no resiliency at this at the end of this case, and I hate you for this. I just wanted to say right out that I hate you for this case. Okay, that's fine. I <laughs> um, full disclosure. Um, you guys have read the title. You know what we're talking about today. This is part one of the Hart family. I couldn't even get oh. that out because I was distraught. And it's funny, I was talking to D, uh, not funny in a haha way, but it's like odd and like comical and like it feels like it was written uh, in the stars or something like that. Uh, since we started this podcast, that this happened, we talked about what, four months later, yeah, five months later? Yeah, after we started. And 
once we got some traction, people were asking, well, this seems to be up your alley. Are you doing the Hart family? Are you doing the Hart family? Are you doing, and at the time, one, I, as a former foster kid and, and being bounced around and not and like all that stuff, like, there's just so much information in people's backgrounds that we just, I, I knew was not going to be available for this case so soon. Mm-hmm. And so many true crime podcasts did jump on it right away. They're like, Oh, but it's a developing story. And I'm like, I am like, there's, there's a grief that I have when I hear stories about foster kids and adoptive kids, uh, either being mistreated or losing their lives based on, uh, abuse or like this murder. Um, so we wanted to wait until we had, there's enough information out. So there's, now there's documentaries and podcasts and I believe there's like a movie or like a TV thing coming out. Um, so yeah, it has been, we were trying to do it, due diligence, um, and also bring our own experiences and knowledge and education into it. And I think that at this point we can, but we also didn't realize that digging into this case again, one would re-traumatize me legitimately. Um, it has been, I, it's been hard. I mean, it's different. Uh, <laughs> it's different for you and I. I just don't like uh, cases with children or children right. being involved because they don't ask to be part of this world. And the least we could do is take care of them and protect them. Um, but for you, you've been in the system, so this is a different, you know, type of thing for you where it it's going to bring you back. So yeah. So if there are any awkward pauses or breaks. That's just because I'm taking my deep breaths. I won't make any awkward jokes, I promise, because that's how I deal with uncomfortableness. (laughs) Right, just laugh uncomfortably. It's fine. You're going to (laughs) be... I'm going to be... Because that's what D does, too, and then people are just going to drag you for giggling. Why is she laughing? Because I am uncomfortable, highly uncomfortable, and I have bad coping skills, so leave me alone. This is true. So before we (laughs) even get started, one of the things I always... One of the things I I hate this. I hate... I'm going to say this out loud, but... And so one of my favorite things is if we get like an email or something and someone's upset, I'm like, oh no, what did we do? I think I saw this. And, right. And I was like, oh no, what, like what happened? And so just to give some clarity and some context, guys, there are, in our earlier episodes, we, we were, we were new and we were trying to be as respectful as possible while still being ourselves. Um, and because of that, we did and said some things that weren't the most sensitive um, but I left those episodes up because growth is possible. And so every so often we get an email from someone who's upset about those episodes. Sure do. And, and I'm like, sorry. Specifically me, who has again, no coping skills when dealing right. with traumatic so, the, experience but, with children. <laughs> but this is why, it, this is why it's, it's great. So I, I leave it up for specifically so people can see the growth that happens. One, because it's, it's, it's possible, but also because we are people who are learning to talk about things. In a way that, as friends, because this is a conversation, the way we do this, like it's informational, but we talk to each other as friends. And so mm-hmm. it's hard to recognize that other people aren't going to be in our friend context. So, right. lo siento, if D giggles, uh, during this podcast, we know, um, how, how the gravity of this situation, we know what it means to people, especially me, being on both sides of it. Um, and as a person who is right now being licensed or in the process of being licensed to be a foster parent, like I know like that it is going to be challenging. So give us some grace is what I'm saying for this, mm-hmm. for these two episodes. Um, but if you're mad, feel free to direct it to our Instagram DMs and not an email because I have enough emails in my inbox. I'm sorry. So D, just because I know you don't like to do it. Uh huh. 
Do you want to start us off? Do you want to? I could start you kick off, off on the discovery of what happened. Um, so we're looking way back, not way back, but a time that I could remember. Um, Monday, March twenty sixth, two thousand eighteen. I w- I wonder what case we did there. Um, but it was a uh, three thirty eight p.m. Um, I guess there's a German tourist kind of walking around pacific coast um they look down a cliff and see a brown suv flipped over in the pacific ocean along highway one in westport california when the police arrived they found five people deceased three children and two adults um they were identified as sarah and jennifer hart they were both aged 38 along with their children, Marcus, 19, Jeremiah, 14, and Abigail, who was 14 as well. Um, we come to find out later that they were missing other kids, but they, you know, were found later, and we'll probably talk about that more towards the end. But the police did continue to look for these children um, and try to figure out, you know, why this cliff, this car fell off the cliff. Um, their initial t- thoughts, you know, being that it's a cliff, it's kind of dangerous, a car. So they think this was an accident. Mm. But on March 31st, they discovered that the SUV was driving at 90 miles per hour at the time of the crash. So around... The huh? Black bo- I was like, the, the black box-esque. Right. It, it was, was it one of those SUVs with the OnStar? Wasn't that the situation? Like, OnStar, like situation i want to say that well i, th- I forgot the well, yeah, make I, and model of the car oh no it is oh man it's a gmc yukon yeah uh, which so, i think yeah, had so the onstar GMC, i remember buick yeah. yeah they all have the and so when you have onstar i don't know if onstar is still a thing anymore maybe by um, another but name. i remember I, don't know. I remember when they became a thing um my mentor had one he was so proud of it <laughs> um, but there is like a black box in your car because they, they have to track you GPS wise. It was there. So if you get stuck on the highway or you're in the middle of nowhere and run out of gas, like it was like the digital or audio answer to AAA, mm-hmm. basically. Right. And they charge you an extra $2,300. I'm not complaining because I never had it. But I'm just saying. Right. Um, but so yeah. that was what happened. Yeah. yeah so like. Time goes by and they're doing this case and stuff again is starting to look suspicious. It's maybe not looking like, you know, a crash, just an accident, but maybe intentional. Yep. They and then as as things go on it starts to look more and more Yeah. Like a murder suicide. Yes. And that is where we'll put a yeah. pin in it. Yes. Because we're gonna um, bet we'll we, go back to that. Yeah. Um as as we go through, we're going to start off um, with the two that we Jennifer mentioned, Jennifer and Sarah Hart. Yes. And we're going to talk about their lives, their relationships to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll go into what set them up uh, to be, quote unquote, parents. And I'm so angry. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like, as I'm talking about it, I'm like, those would be parents. And then the adoption of the two sets of siblings and as we will round back around to again the fateful day, um, uh, where this is where they made the decision this, to, to yeah to do what they did. This is um, this is the case, whew. and you know for me it's like 
I don't know. I just don't know. I just, I don't, I don't know how to put it in words appropriately and not to be offensive. (laughs) Because it makes me so angry that you didn't have to take these children in. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. We, (laughs) there is, um, we will get, so there's a lot of frustrating parts. And I know that, uh, again, I know that, uh, children is a sensitive subject and we know that, especially, uh, even if you don't foster or have been a foster kid, the idea around foster kids is that they are at higher risk and they are. And so why specifically have... pick these children who are minorities? I don't know. I'm mad. Let me let me go. With my well, there's there's also the conversation around like what as, during my research, a conversation around picking and like what's offered, you know. True. Um, so there is black and brown kids are overrepresented in the foster and adoptive. We know this. Uh, yeah. yeah system and so like there's if there's a person specifically if there are couples who are willing to take sibling groups of color though you know they're going to be given (laughs) more than likely a kid of color Mm -hmm. because unfortunately a lot of people who go into foster parenting are nervous off the bat especially if they're white and they're they'd ask for you know maybe a white kid between the ages of four and 12. That'll be my range. That'll be what I want just because I, I want to be, make sure I can relate. I don't want to make mistakes or sometimes it could be other things. But so, so if you have a family who is willing to take, again, a sibling group, which is hard, usually two or more, I mean, two or less, like kids is easy, right? Two kids is sim- simple enough. Sometimes one kid is definitely easier than two, but sibling groups of three or four, they end up getting split up often you know, two and one, you know, and so if you take all three, uh, they will, they will jump on it. We'll talk more so, about it later, but yeah, let's talk it'll, about there's a lot. Jennifer these, and Sarah and how they met. Um, you want to go ahead or I could, I could just kick us off. Yeah. So Sarah was born, uh, Sarah Gangler, um, and Jen was born, Jennifer, Jennifer Hart. Hart. Yep. Uh, they grew up in South Dakota. Uh, sorry. And <laughs> it was like, I was like, it makes me so mad because I, I, we were going that we're, I feel like we're walking down the same road as another podcast, but we're not going to be as humanizing. No, um, but they not. met at, right. They met in college. Um, Sarah would be the only one who would go on, uh, to graduate with her degree in special education. Mm-hmm. Again, pisses me off. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Jen would never graduate, but they would continue to be linked together. And so one thing, the, the context of this is that Minnesota is still very much Minnesota. I'm sorry. South Dakota is the Midwest, even if we forget it exists sometimes. <laughs> and because we all do we like do. North and South Dakota. I'm like, Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> same thing with Montana. I'm like, Oh, that's right. But the Midwest is just not as progressive or liberal as the coastal cities, you know, or even. You know, I'd argue there there are liberal-esque cities in the Midwest. If you look at, like, a St. Louis, Missouri, there's there's a lot of black and brown and queer people and things like that. But South Dakota is just not it. So there is there is a culture of repression here, right. and they talk about it a lot. Right. And listening to the Broken Hearts podcast, that was harped on a lot, is right. that they felt um, kind of isolated and somewhat tokenized. Right. And that could be that that could be a reason why they felt the need to overcompensate right, sometime especially further down. Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> are you but trying not to were, like vomit in your right, mouth? Because I don't I don't care. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have we've talked about some 
some horrible human beings who have who have taken the lives of countless victims. Right. But there's just something about this case that is so visceral for me. Um, that's something we know what it is, but right, it's just right. it's one of those things. Uh, so what ends up happening is they go they go the typical route uh, when you're closeted, and usually when it's it's usually easier to identify your lover, your lover, how old am I, or your your significant other as a roommate. A roommate it's easier to yep. live together. Um, and only the people who know you intimately who come to your home would know better. Right. Right. And so it's easy to let people know, like, oh, no, yeah, she re- lives with me. She's just, yeah, my, just roommate. my roommate. Just my roommate. Just my friend. Right. It's just so much easier to go that route. Uh, but eventually, uh, they would, they would escape the, the closet, uh, that was South Dakota and end up moving to Alexandria, Minnesota, mm-hmm. which is, if you ever Google it, beautiful, beautiful town. Minnesota beautiful town. in general is a beautiful yeah. state. I would never live there because it gets either. really cold. But yes, but they'd move to they'd move to Alexandria, uh, Minnesota, uh, and they would get a job together at a department store, mm-hmm. where Sarah mm-hmm. would go on and become a manager. Again, just seems like she, at this time seems like the more one definitely one. carried the other, but one right. had the control, which I don't like in their relationship. Um, you know, we talk about how the LGBT community go through a lot of abuse in their relationship and nothing's really said because already they're, um, you know, look or frowned upon by certain organizations that could help them through this stuff. So I feel like it was one of those relationships, but they definitely come out around this time too and say they're gay. And I, apparently they lost a lot of friends once they did from what Jen reports. So. I mean, that's, that's typically what happens. Yeah. Like, again, yeah, that's, but those are like your, your quote unquote friends, right? right? The people that you, like, you engage with, you eat dinner with, um, but you, they don't know you. Right. You know, so those people that you drop that drop off after you come out are people that, you, yeah, they're people you expected to lose, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I thought family as well were difficult with right. them too. Their families weren't happy. Well, South Dakota. And <laughs> <laughs> so, if, you know, and so they, they were, they were kind of, they had a new opportunity here, and this is where we start seeing them sort of reinventing themselves. Right, by moving. And, yeah, being able to assert themselves. And they do it twice in this case, right, where mm-hmm. it's a, you can pack up and leave, and you can be someone else if mm. you move 20, mm. you know, 2,000 miles away. Okay, so, whatever. happens here. Um, obviously, Jen had the more rambunctious, uh, kind of in-your-face personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and out of the two, we talked about one kind of carried them. The other one had the kind of had everything in their hand. Control. Definitely um, was right. a control. And so that's and that's kind of where we were mm-hmm. uh, in this. I'm sorry. My <clears throat> my throat mm-hmm. told you I'm dry in here. Yeah. That's... I don't have a humidifier. <laughs> Do not. You have a house me when you're about to actually probably get a house and some kids before me. So don't you there. Well, that's not, that might not be true. Hmm. That might not be true. I mean, I to be honest, I hope not. Because it means I it means I'll grow up. Wait, I'm growing up, and I don't like that. We've done a lot um, in the last three years. Let me tell you. Oh, we have. We've grown up a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's not here nor there. Just so everyone else knows, my birthday is in like what nine days. So be aware. excuse the breaks. We're uh, gonna <laughs> need to take breaks in between this case because we're trying to lessen our anger. I know I am right now. Oh, yeah. Because I have about, feelings about Jen. Well, Jen, so the thing is that Jen is 
this is this is this is the thing that when I was doing the research and everybody, if you read all the accounts and you listen to everyone talking about Jen and who she was growing up, who she was as an adult, Jen was this very sandpaper like woman who was stern and kind of took up a lot of space in any room that she was in. Mm. Um, but if you look at her past, it's because she was such a troublemaker. You know, like she. Like she, like in high school, she was a problem. Attitude. Uh, I believe that she had gotten arrested for stealing, um, when she was in college. And so people who come from a, have a background of either troublesome behavior or troublesome history with family, a lot of times they look to, again, compensate for that or make up for that in providing a quote unquote safe space or soft landing space for other kids who are disadvantaged. I.e., closet lesbian, I'm going to care for these poor, disadvantaged black and brown kids. Mm. And so that was, that is the, the line I saw and I recognized almost immediately with Jen. I was like, I could see her being down for that as that's a way of saying, cool. well, look at us. Still that's what? I said, that's cool. Still don't like her. Oh, I'm not giving her I- credit. I'm saying that like, this is what the mindset was. Right. Friend. So. Shortly after they met and they moved to Minnesota, not met, but, you know, moved to Minnesota, um, they get their um, license to foster children. Um, and then in 20, huh? No, it was just, you know, groans. <laughs> oh, in 2004, they take in a 15-year-old foster daughter. Um, and they, it doesn't go well. So they openly complain about this daughter um to their co-workers um the girl who's now older says you know jen and sarah like planned to adopt her but then all of a sudden stopped and like didn't adopt her and just kind of like dropped her back off and that was the end of their like it was very abrupt um but they talked about adopting her but they could were also complaining about her so so this is, yeah, so this is when I was looking into this, because there's not a lot of accounts around who this who this now woman is. Um, but they, you're right, they would complain about her. Uh, and, which is, it's, I'd imagine when you take in a, a teenager, this is, and I, this is, what, right, and so this is what I want to say. This is what the beautiful thing about what did you do is that you have two people who know what they're talking about when it comes to foster care. And so... With 15, with teenagers, it's incredibly difficult. And it's not because they're so broken and they're so angry. What it is, is that teens are so used to the only people who are caring about them being paid to care for them. Right. And typically they've been in the system for a while. Right. It's very rare. They've lived that you a lot a of life already. Right. Like they've right. seen a lot, you know. So sometimes they could, teenagers could be cold, right? Where they, they, they listen. They say they'll follow you. They'll follow your rules. They'll eat when you eat. Mm-hmm. These won't talk much. They won't interact much. They'll follow you. They, you know, they'll go to school, come home. It'll be that sometimes it can be combativeness just to kind of test where you are and push your buttons and find out what those buttons are. And regular teen, um, like teenagers that grow up in the nuclear family, like regular, like, you know, mom, dad, whatever, they go through the same stuff too. So right. it's not However, specific, the, yeah. but also and as well when they grow up in a nuclear family (laughs) they're yours right you know you know who they are there's a stake and they also the kids recognize you know the it's the relationship that you have that is being kind of levied right you know so when you tell your kid i want you home 
at this time, they understand that there is some kind of consequence. Right. But with foster, sometimes with foster kids, if they don't know who you are, right. there's a combativeness just to see what, you know, what, how teeth. far they could push you. And so I could imagine that this girl probably gave them a little lip because I would. <laughs> you know, I, I got, I got into the, I got into the system at 10 years old, nine, 10 years old. So when I was jumping through, I was mouthy and that was, the, that was adult Charnel is mouthy right. now. So there is exactly <laughs> nothing's changed. And so I can imagine that, you know, they said something or did something that she might not have liked or something that was insensitive or even something that triggered her. And there was an argument or something, which would make, which makes it easier to then go to someone else and complain about this girl. But also they're immature women. If you, if you want to be honest about it. And so I would, I would argue that they would make things up saying that this girl ate out of the trash, mm-hmm. which also, again, feeds their, look at us. We saved this girl who is, whose most basis, um, whatever, what is the word am I looking for? Her, her basis instinct is to eat food wherever she can find it, even when there's a fridge full. Like this is how much we're saving her. Like trying so, to, like I could see it being all these sides of things. This is why I don't like. This is where I don't love Jen because she has this way of putting public stuff in out in the public where it shouldn't be, and you're in fact like embarrassing these children. Like she she does exactly. this with this girl. Like okay, so let's say f- that was false and she falsified that and she's being dramatic. Yeah, wrong the on girl that said point. She never ate out of the trash. But what if for so you get a child with pica? Who does eat right. out of the trash? It's not fair to them to look, and you know the internet is forever. They get older mm-hmm. and they're able to see your page one day, and you talking all this shit. That's right. embarrassing. And also, for for those of you who don't know what pica is, it's a go ahead. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. It's when it's when you're eating objects that are basically not meant to be eaten. Typically, so sometimes you'll see kids chew on pencils. Uh, that was a that was a thing from one of my one of my uh youth at one mm-hmm. point uh chewing on pencils you see that sometimes it's it could be pregnancy oh, um pregnancy yeah. sometimes triggers a pica that, um uh, it could with, be with people kids, with intellectual disability yeah, yeah inter- mm-hmm. yep, intellectual disabilities I actually used to work with um people with intellectual disabilities who had pica and it, there was a lock on everything i had um, a friend who used to lick uh those mattel cars those box cars yep and it was the most uncomfortable thing to see. He wasn't really my friend. He was my mom's friend's son. So he was always in my house. But I feel like, like you see he, a lot of pica in Mind Strange Addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's things that are, could actually be diagnosed and kind of and helped and treated. But mm-hmm. we don't have to talk about it. Yeah. But so you're right. So you're shaming this girl, which she says isn't true. But what pissed me off the most is that. They drop this girl off at her therapist's office and they never pick her back up. It's the it's the way they end their relationship with this girl wasn't the appropriate way. Didn't reach so... out to the social worker and have her picked up from the home and explain to her what's happening. They're cowards in the way that. So they yes, you're causing trauma again. Mm-hmm. You're re-traumatizing this child. Um, you made promises that you did not keep because you were speaking of adopting this child. Yep. So you thought you were going to save this girl. You gave her false expectation and hope and you disappointed her so you're informing her that the people that take care of her are most likely just going to disappoint her which is going to traumatize her further along in life um and not to trust adults and all that stuff so you did not help them at all you did not help her at all you didn't do anything to and then on top of it you end up with more children and that's what frustrates me looking at that original case right there if i was that therapist i wouldn't recommend until there's more training in classes 
Well, this is so this is actually a perfect time to talk about this, too, is that I was looking into Minnesota's fostering system. If anyone who's listening works for Minnesota's foster care system, I don't know why. But there is (laughs) (laughs) feel free to email me and tell me I'm wrong. But I went to the main websites and read all the agency profile pages and went and see where the trainings happen. And so the steps to become a so let me I'll I'll. I'll contrast it with Connecticut, right? Because that's where we are. Yep. So Connecticut is, in order to become a foster parent, the first step is that, one, you have to say, I want to be a foster parent. And they say, okay, here are our information sessions. And we'll tell you about what the system looks like. And we'll tell you what the, you know, what the lingo is, all that stuff. And then from there, you can decide if you want to move on to take the classes. A two-hour info session, you're forced to sit there, forced to answer questions, blah, blah, blah. Right? The next step is actual classes. Typically, before COVID, they were like nine to 12 weeks long. So you were going <laughs> and sitting down in front of people, sometimes more than once a week, and being trained and being taught to be licensed. And then there's eight more uh, pieces after that that you have to do on your own without whatever facilitator is there. And then at that point, you are licensed. And then at, after that, kids can be placed with you. In Minnesota, I, I wrote it down. So forgive me. Give me one sec. I want to make sure I can find it. So in Minnesota, it's almost, it's like backwards. It's, it's so ridiculous. So what you do is you pick a, an agency, you do an application, they do a background check, then they do a, they do a home study, then, and then you get licensed after you clear that. And then they provide you with training. That's weird. But the minute you're licensed, you're able to house a kid. Awesome. Why would you train them while they're housing? It doesn't matter. So like, this is the, <laughs> this is the contrast. So I can see them not knowing, like mishandling a kid because they don't know, you know, and it's like, because no one's holding them accountable. Right. I don't know how many kids are in, I didn't Google how many kids are in Minnesota's foster care system. I should have, but it's too many. I can tell you that it's just any states, too many kids are in foster care. I'm sure. And so I'm sure. like there's, there's the, there's the backwards part of the system. There's plenty of articles. See, I didn't even look into case. Minnesota because I know Connecticut and Connecticut is not even perfect, but at it's, least but you know what? Connecticut and Ohio are leaders. Yeah. Right. It's insane They're leaders for many things. States. They're little leaders for yeah. um criminal justice reforms. They're leaders for That's why I mean, as much as one time, once upon a time, I wanted to move out of Connecticut. I was like, recently, I was like, I think I'll stay. <laughs> Just- I tell people Connecticut's a great place to raise your kids. Yeah, the- as like, if you if you can find if you can. I mean, give them the proper support. Also live but, because I feel like right. you know Black Lives Matter. We haven't had a major case yet. Knock on wood. Where's the wood? Um, yeah, yeah, so you just ruined it now. <laughs> I'm Jinx sorry. Man. Um, my safety. I feel safe here, so I'm gonna go ahead and stay. I don't even, you know, right. I don't like the cold, but I'm going to stay. But this isn't, this isn't a Connecticut boost up. Come here. Please don't. Stay where you <laughs> right, are. Right, because everyone's buying the houses. Stuff. I've been where, so yeah. upset because people yeah, have been coming since COVID. I'm concerned about the wrong things. I am. I'm worried about that. <laughs> I'm worried about your COVID cases. Keep them out. Um, well, as yeah, long as so I can get my where... house, I can lock the doors and not come out. <laughs> yeah, you're going to go outside at one point. I'm not. Um, but so this is what, but this is the point, this is the point is that. They've tried and they failed. And typically in Connecticut, if you do something like that, where you are traumatizing a kid, there's this, there's this overwhelming piece in Connecticut that humanizes children. Who would have thought? And <laughs> <Stop it. laughs> like they, we have a bill of rights and everything. Like kids are deserved to have a say in their placements and who's caring for them. And the fact that you didn't give her a choice 
you know, or give her the, the, the dignity of being able to say goodbye, you know, to you. She lived with them for, or was it more than six months, but less than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's long enough. Right. To even if you guys don't always get along to build a relationship. And then again, the promise adoption and trauma comes from constantly moving and having what you've come to learn and love the smells, uh, the, you know, the smells, uh, the sights, uh, what clothes feel like, what couches feel like. Uh, the smells of shampoos and th- little things like that latch on to developing brains that people don't think about. Then all of a sudden it's ripped away and you're brought into a new thing. And now your body and your mind is acclimating to new stuff. Believe me, this is, as a person who was traumatized, one of the things I love is the smell of my grandma's stuffing. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I noticed my first Thanksgiving away from my family or like my kind of immediate family was I didn't have that. Right. And it hurt. Like little things like that. Mm-hmm. So like... That's what they did wrong. We're going to move forward. Um, and so now we start seeing them. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> yup. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so they're still able to uh, to foster. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Even if this was an adoption, this would be like a disrupted adoption and they would be like, you can't do this ever again. Right. Um, like you're, you're done. You're never going to foster or adopt in this state ever again. Like that's the way to do it. That's how Connecticut does it. Right. Um, but, but here we are. So they're able to do, they, yeah, they're able to do that. And because they're able to do that, we see the incoming of a sibling group here. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's the, um, oh man, I knew their last name before they were hearts. But it was Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so the background to them, uh, Abigail was the youngest, um, then there's Hannah, and then there's Marcus, who at, at the, at the time of the, at the, of the crash was 18. Right. Uh, 19. No, 18. I was right. I'm right. Oh, man. <laughs> My brain is so scrambled now. Um, so one of the things I wanted to be very clear about when we covered this case is that I want to be able to give the kids their history, right? Their story. Right. And not just say that they're victims at the bottom of a cliff edge. Right. But that because they we, had family before that. Let me preference this because we've heard yeah. in many other stories and versions of the story um retold a focus on the couple. But the kids had a story too before they became part of the Hart family. Absolutely. Um, so we need to mention that part too because we need to humanize these kids. They're not just objects that, you know, were treated badly and ended up dead. No, they were people with lives and family who still exist. Exactly. Brothers and moms and aunts and uncles. And I think one of the things I, again, I, as a kid in foster care, there is a blatant discrediting and dismissal of parents almost immediately. The minute you enter care and not maybe not by your social worker, maybe not by whoever their supervisor is. But when people find out that you're a foster kid, like your teachers find out, like I remember going to the news. I It happened to me before middle school. So when I went to middle school, all the people knew that I was a foster kid because my my guardian on my paperwork was my social worker. And so they all knew that and they would say it. Like out loud, they would say, like, you're going to make me call your social worker. They wouldn't say, I'm going to call your parent. 
nothing. They would humiliate. Like, it was one of those things where it's like, then people know that, you know, you come from this broken home and your mom is terrible or your dad is terrible. Right. But what ends up happening is these kids are still very much loving on their parents. And so when you dismiss them and act like they're these horrible monsters, but to the kids, they're not always monsters all the time if they were. You know what I'm saying? So there's there's just a background that we need to be able to respect and honor on, on some cases. Now, some, again, some, there are parents who are who are destructive and abusive and should be held accountable. But in the kid's eyes, again, as a kid who came from abuse, their mom is still mom. Right. You know, so it is, it is still a thing. And like to this day, my mom's been, my mom has passed away 13 years ago. There are still things that I would defend about my mother to anyone's face as a 30 year old man, like would like to my last breath. Even if she was terrible. So right. that's what I wanted to get. So we're talking about, um, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, uh, but Shurik, Shurich, um, Tammy, Tammy Shurich. If you guys know how to pronounce it, it looks like it's a German based last name. Um, she was the mother of Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus. Um, and so their background isn't one that's full. Again, it's their kids and their foster kids. So a lot of things are sealed. Right. Uh, but. The background for this is more medical neglect, it seems, than it is in a straight-up abusive or destructive home. Uh, and if you don't know what medical neglect is, is if your kid is ill and you do nothing to make sure they get well again, or you're lax or slow in the attempt to make sure they get the treatment they need. So if your kid has a sore throat and it ends up being strep, but you're treating it like it's a cold, you know, or you ignore it completely... Medical neglect. Even if you're even if you're trying to treat it, but you're not treating it properly. Mm-hmm. And that happens neglect. a lot with people from other cultures because not everyone mm-hmm. seeks Western medicine like I was right gonna, away. I was bring that up, so yeah. you know, being Caribbean, <laughs> like you know, I was just fortunate because my mom was um, an MD back in Haiti. But still, you know, there is that traditional medicine that's you know primarily used first um, mm-hmm. in four mills, and it still happened in my household, even though my mom was a right. doctor. So. And black folks will tell you to drink some ginger ale and lay down first before you <laughs> <laughs> before you do anything. So like it's just the stupid. That's a joke, but clearly no, but like I it's, laugh because the way ginger ale was out there during right. the beginning of COVID was hilarious. Exactly that bold ginger ale. Yep. I'm telling you, but I feel like it protected me. But however, <laughs> but so that's just the context. And so what happened was the first time she had brought into the hospital. Uh, I believe that it was it was Hannah who was covered uh, in ant bites, and it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another time where she went to the doctors because her asthma medications had been changed. Um, and at that time, they realized that there were bruises. Another time, uh, there was a staph infection where again after those ant bites where they ended up having to put her antibiotics and remove like a chunk of flesh from her because the infection was that bad. And so there was another point where Hannah, uh, where Tammy didn't show up to an appointment uh, to bring Hannah to the hospital. Um, And so what happened was people started making phone calls. Right. And so they get, so she says she couldn't get there. She had to wait for a ride. There was all these things going down. And so the ride was their social worker, Sharon Kirby. And so they believe that, that Sharon was connected by the ambulance dispatcher. Then again, this is a, this is a family that's in and out of the hospital, uh, multiple times. 
And so what happened was, according to Tammy, again, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus's mom, uh, she was told by Cher and Kirby that they were not going to take her kids away and that they were here to help in other ways. So maybe it was a, we need to teach you how to readily identify issues or health concerns or things like that. Which, maybe you are. Which right. um, they do have, by the way. They do have they do, parent right. educators that, you know, mm-hmm. work to in the parents' house to teach parents how to be parents. Because sometimes it's a matter of that. Some yeah, some people are just bad, yeah. you know. But I'm not giving her again. Yeah, I'm not. This is still I'm not abuse. excusing people. Yeah. Still abuse. Still it's abuse. still very well, much something. Very that much neglect. Whatever. It's neglect. It's, it's still very neglect. much something mm-hmm. um, that should be addressed. Um, but Timmy says that they were told like, "Hey, I'm not here for that. What I'm here to do is make sure that you know. Once we make sure that Hannah squared away, that you know how to better take care of her. Like that's what it is. But then she says the same night that she came back and said, "We are removing your children." And that they had, she already had the paperwork signed and filled out and all this. And so I just want to, I just also want to point out here again, telling the story of the kids is that that is how sudden it can be. And it doesn't have to be because all the kids were there. It wasn't like just one of the kids was, it was all the kids were in the hospital and they all went to hospital with mom to make sure Hannah was okay. And they all very much expected to go back home that night. Right. And it would, so this is how trauma starts is that kids are ripped from what they know. Regardless, again, we get that parents <laughs> are terrible at times. Right. I'm just saying that, reminding that kids are kids and foster kids are foster kids. Um, this is what their life looks like. It's so sudden. Like, for me, my social worker dropped by unexpectedly when I got removed from the home. It wasn't like she intended to remove me. She was stopping by to say hello because she was in the next t- uh, street over. Mm-hmm. Right? She was just coming to see if I was around or outside. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, and it, I was playing outside and Next thing you know, she's like, sure, now it's not safe. You need to come with me. And I trust her. So I'm like, sure, where are we going? Oh, you're like, and then in the car, I'm like, wait, I'm not going home. So things like that happen. And so she ends up getting, she ends up uh, having the kids removed from her custody. And then she also ends up signing over her parental rights uh, voluntarily. And the ongoing story about Tammy is usually when things like this happen, mom has to kind of step up or the parent has to step up and show that they're taking the necessary steps um, to do better, to be reunified with their kids. But what happened with what I read was that Tammy was making $600 a month um, and she would eventually get charged with that neglect, Uh, but she couldn't pay court fees. And so she ended up spending 30 30 days in jail. But again, $600 a month and the fees were like $225. She couldn't afford it. And then another time, she got, I believe it was a few months in jail, uh, six months, I believe, and because she couldn't afford to pay the fees. And so there are things that happen, you know, that keep people out. So I, I just wanted to give context for like what Marcus, uh, Abigail and Hannah were coming from, right. because a lot of times we, we believe it's the house is on fire all the time right. and the house can be smoking. But some things can be, tr- you know, treated uh, and rehabilitated. And that's and I just not think the course that, of action that right. they decided in this case. I think that this at this point, I think Which mom shame. screwed up a lot, mm-hmm. but couldn't. There were just impediments to getting her back. And so I think that was the, again, I don't know all of it because I again, only found what I you found. You know, here's my thing, though. Mom screwed up a lot. There was a time where it was a lot but not enough to be taken where steps to teach the parent how to be a parent could have been taken you know what i'm saying so right. i mean they called but i mean i feel like the social workers was in their lives for a little bit <laughs> right and i think there was i think there was like in the definitely in the in the first cases where cuz hospitals are 
are told and trained if you if you see things that look suspicious right if a kid comes in with constant broken bones or if a kid comes in with constant medical issues that have been prolonged because there's lack of care to flag that so i'd imagine that this social worker has been around for a while there was a rapport bill and that maybe there was those those interventions being made but there was no mention of it sharon kirby didn't reach out didn't come back out for comment uh, out of fear of being sued because she no longer works for them um but there was all this stuff that, that was, so I'd imagine that there were steps taken again, especially if mom voluntarily signed over her rights. I just believe there was, there were conversations had that we're just not privy to, but maybe. yeah, maybe like, but typically sometimes they make you feel low. we know the system. So sometimes they could have made her feel like she had to give up rights to get them back. So you never know. Right. So. But once you give them up, that's it. Right. I think there's it's a lack harder. of education. Yeah, too. it's harder. Right. And so if you don't know what the system will do, you know, once you do it. And then so what happens in this case is that these kids um, end up getting adopted out of state. And the parents that are adopting them hmm. are Sarah and Jennifer Hart. Hmm. <laughs> and so. Uh... Right. And so again, I don't know how much training they have or anything, but these kids who, again, they are kids who are ripped from what they know and being bounced until they are placed now end up in the home with Sarah and Jen. So sometime during all of this uh, down in Texas, um, the Family Protective Services, uh, they removed three other sets of children. And actually, it's four. Um, Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. Um, the other child, Dante, uh, were placed in like the care of their aunt. They're all together at this time. Celestine, she files a petition to adopt all the four children. You know, she wants to keep them together, but it gets denied. Yeah, so it does get denied. Uh, and so this is what happens: is that this is this is something called. And I know this is uh, going to be fun. This is why I kind of like this. This doing this case is because we know a lot, mm. and it's like this is it's not a it's not so much a mental health thing right away, but as much as it is a human services and social work. Right. Um, but when someone is placed in the care of a family member or someone or a family friend, it's still foster care, but what they call it is kinship care. Right. Which you and what? what they know that. Right, and because I was, I ended up being a kinship care case. My aunt ended up being my my like permanent foster mom after a while. Um, but again, jumping through hoops, much like Celestine, um, because they make you, mm-hmm. especially in Connecticut, they bring up everything. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that too after we finish the placement here. We'll talk about what background checks usually look like. Um, she had a good job. She had moved. She had uprooted and moved into a bigger place so she could house the kids. Um, and they had moved in with her and she clearly there, that's her, that's their aunt, right. you know? And so they are, they're used to her. They're, they're going to church with her, you know, and she's going to work and she's coming home. She's going to work and she's coming home. She's, she's not, she's not a troublemaker at all. But the problem with kinship care that a lot of people miss when they're talking about it, not social workers, but outdoor uh, people outside the loop of lingo is that kinship care means that it's family. And it is really hard for family members to deny access to a mother that's your sister or your sister-in-law, deny access to their kids, 
right? That's like those weird relationships become strained and then it becomes tenuous right. and there's fight and it's explosive. Like my aunt and my mom went at it constantly because my aunt was one of those DCF said this, you can't see him right. unless I'm there right. or unless they're there. I'm not, I'm not moving on it. Like it's not because you're not, you're not together. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put him in that situation. And I would talk to my mom all the time. My aunt didn't care if I talked to her on the phone. I was not to see her unless they DCF knew or my aunt knew. And But a lot of times, my, my aunt is like the matriarch, the baby matriarch of the family. So it was easy for people to fall in line with her. However, if you're a sister-in-law, this is Jeremiah's father's sister. Right. And, you know, it's like there's, there's, there's complications around that relationship. So if mom was still involved, is the point I'm making, is mm-hmm. that people are like, sometimes people will make concessions and let the kids stay there for a day while they go to the mall or go grocery shopping or let the mom, t- let um, the, the mom take them to the movies or something like that. It happens frequently, should not happen based, you know, according to child protective services, but it does happen. And so what happened with Celestine, um, who said that, you know, the kids were giving her new life, right? She was 56 years old, mm-hmm. is 56, well, was 56, she's now older. Um, and she said they, you know, I quote that they kept me moving and that's what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were little and so she could teach them. She was happy to have them in her house. Right. Um, so when the, she was with them for, when they were with her for about six months, she made the mistake of letting their mom, uh, Sherry Davis, um, an addict, uh, care for them because she got caught into work. And again, she was working hard to earn extra money for the kids. And she saw an opportunity to make that extra money. And she left the kids with their mother. It was found out. Um, but Celestine says she didn't realize she was breaking the rules. She didn't realize that there was an issue, which again, with kinship care, the, the language can sometimes be skewed. This is this is Texas. This isn't Connecticut. Right. Maybe the, there was the language was you know kind of ambiguous, or maybe it wasn't, and she just didn't read it before she signed it. She just wanted to make sure the kids had a home, but that is not allowed. Nope. And so what happened while Celestine was at work was that like with my situation, the social worker the stopped by. Visit, yeah. And yeah. and it can happen, right? If the, if they if they just want to see if, if they like you. And they, right, if they, if they enjoy you and they're nearby, why not speak to the family? Why not drop in and make sure you're good? Um, sometimes they'll bring, you know, like, oh, we made cookies, you know, for Christmas, anything like that. And stop by and realize that the mom whose home they, they removed the kids from was babysitting and that's not okay. Right. Uh, and so immediately they were taken from the home and put back into foster, foster care. Yes. And so, so Celestine tried like twice to get these kids back. Mm-hmm. But eventually, um, they were placed out of state and adopted. Three of them were Devante, mm-hmm. Jeremiah, and Sierra. So Devante is five at the time. Jeremiah is four and Sierra is three. Um, Dante, I believe, who's older, right? The oldest boy? Yes. Um, he ends up, I think, still in foster care. He doesn't uh, leave Texas. Um, right. And so this is... Sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't cut you off. But this is what I was talking about earlier in the episode where you talk about sibling groups... Um, be, it being hard to keep sibling groups together, especially if we have an older sibling. Yeah. Um, in my situation, my brother at the time when I was removed, it was 18 already. So there was nothing they could do for him. Right. They left him in the house, you know, but they removed my sister and I who are two years apart. So I was nine or I can't remember. I was nine mm-hmm. and she was 11, you know, so 
it's one of those. So when you have older kids, there's the issue, again, we talked about teenagers being harder to place because people, I hate to say it like this, but as a foster kid, I feel like I have space. It's like being black and being able to say the N-word. Mm-hmm. It's like people want puppies. They want young kids that they can shape and, and dress up and mold mm-hmm. and, you know, post pictures with, i.e. the hearts. You know, ah. they, they <laughs> right, they want that. And teenagers are set. They have a personality. They know what they like. They know what they don't like for the most part. You know, they're just trying to figure out how to, right. And so, so there's that option where the, the, the potential placement could have said, we don't want kids over the age of 15 anymore. Nope. Well, we have these three young kids. Would you be willing to take them? And so again, this is how sibling groups get displaced or separated but also more trauma because the other thing we've talked about this too on the podcast is that siblings are usually the first relationships social relationships we build with our internal family units and you're usually the longest relationships we'll ever have in our lives yeah i know it's like you meet your kid you meet your your brother and sister and until they die literally like that's it like you don't even know your parents as long as you know it's like it's typically how it works. Your friends doesn't matter. Your siblings, you've known them longer. And so to be separated from people that you only know to be, to represent home is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And which again, pisses me off when I know where they're going. I'm sure Dante has um, trauma too, because he doesn't Absolutely. get wrapped up in all this too. So Absolutely. I'm sure, you know, I mean, if you know the heart story, you know the outcome and Dante is still with us. He uh, also did an interview. Uh, I forgot to read that interview. I had it and I never read it, but yeah. He's still with us, so. Yes, and oof, but of course, so the three that we mentioned earlier end up in the care of the Hart family. Uh, so with Jen and Sarah, so there's six of them all together. There's Marcus, Abigail, Hannah, Devonte, Jeremiah, and Sierra, now being cared by the ladies that recently dropped off a 15 year old to their bed. Exactly. So. So. One of the things I wanted to talk about before we put a, uh, a pin in episode one or part one I'm of this. It here. Yeah, because I have to. But there <laughs> is. <laughs> we, we were talking about how do we split it up and make it the, the most, next part. Like, I'm going to be upset the whole time. Right. And there's going to be a lot of anger. And I'm warning everybody now. I, I told him I could get through this part because this is just kind of like the background. Yeah, this is the easy the stuff. The meat of it um, happens in the next episode. And everything i'm about to like i'm gonna be gagging as i'm like discussing this and you won't and you won't have to wait a month that's coming out next week so no no fears um it's like again me i say nothing i i i commit to it coming out (laughs) next week if it doesn't come out next week blame d but one of the things i wanted to say um was talking about the background checks and how thorough they usually are and so right now in in the united states there's over four hundred thousand kids in foster care if you don't know that now you know right I know in Connecticut alone that Connecticut services 15,000 children, I believe, um, where it does not mean that they're all removed from the home. It just means that DCF is involved in some way, shape or form, whether that be like mentoring programs and things like that. Um, but Connecticut, again, is a leader, like 60 percent of kids go home to their parents right, in Connecticut right. foster care because we have the money to to move around human services and get them the things they need. It's not as much as it used to be. <laughs> 10 years ago but it's still a lot more than a lot of states do that are our size or are mid to small state um but typically background checks look like this where it's your typical criminal background right they want to make sure you're not you know a murderer you're, oh, fuck 
so mad about that. Sorry. They want to make sure that, you know, you, you, you don't have any violent tendencies. So when they pulled that background check, mm-hmm. they saw all of Jen's stuff. They saw her arrest when she was in college and all that stuff. But if she was stealing and there's enough time between them, you know, and there's like, she's yeah. shown that she is now a mature adult, quote unquote, then those things don't, her. yeah. Especially if it's not a felony. If it's, if it's like a misdemeanor, it's going to be batted away typically, right? If it's small. If it was like, she stole 500 grand from a bank. They're like, wait a minute. You know, who is this mastermind who broke in and, you know, but it's that. Um, but what it also does is it's the mental health check that they do. They scour to see if you have any major hospitalizations for any mental health emergencies ever. You know, that, and that, and that goes for anyone who's going to be in the house. So that is, if, that's Sarah and Jen. Um, they also have to do people who are who might be in the care of the kids, like babysitters, like grandma, things like that. If anyone's going to be spending extended time with the kids, as far as a caretaker, that has to be done. And not only that, right, then it becomes the fingerprinting piece. It becomes, uh, like, what is the other thing I'm going to miss? Um, yikes. It's the, they search um, the DCF database or the Child Protective Services database in that state. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they look for disrupted adoptions or they look for like reports of abuse or corporal punishment or, and so when they did that background check, you know that the 15 year old being dropped off at the therapist came up. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And they saw that and said, she can't, they can't handle a 15 year old single child. We're going to give them three and then not only three, six. Because once you move states, for a while, that becomes a thing. There's traveling. If they're not fully adopted yet, like social workers from Texas will travel to Minnesota, vice versa. Um, However, once you are adopted, that travel stops. You still have a worker, but that worker is now in-state and based with an agency um, that is local. So that way you can get the the support you need. So someone saw and had to report on that and was asked questions about that. That caseworker was asked questions about that. And it was still allowed. So that's, these are the things that happen. We talk about when we make those quips about the system failing at certain parts. Mm-hmm. We talk about Michelle Blair and how mm-hmm. these, how social workers were involved for two years. This is how that happens is that there is a need for kids to be placed and there is a high need for sibling groups of two, of, of three or more and kids of color to be placed. And. What is the name of the act? I don't care what state it is. If you're going to get... First of all, I don't think you should allow more than three if it's a two-family income, depending on the income. I think it's to be based on the income, first of all. Um, And clearly, we will get to it, but it was a one-person income um, household. And I know they give money, but mm -hmm. still. And then if you're... I don't care what your background is. If you're taking in three or more than two... You should have somebody in there every week for the next year. I don't care. I don't think. No, I agree, yeah. I think it's every week, there is no reason why a caseworker can't come to your house every week and check. Well, there is a reason, and we're going to talk about well, we're going to talk about that yeah. before we wrap up, too, is that typically the hope for social workers who are working with child placement cases is that their caseload isn't more than 18, okay. right? And... Most social workers will tell you that their cases load is higher than that. And if you, especially if you have intensive cases where you're required to be spending two, three days stopping by, you know, D's house because D can't get right with her kids, you know, and then someone always ends up, you know, 
being missed or neglected in that. Um, but when we talk about, so I agree, like more social workers, the money should be there. So that way people can be adequately monitored and supervised and supported. The other thing is when I talk about the high need for, um, for black and brown placements is that back in the day, like before 1994, and again, I hate policy classes, but I had to take them before. And <laughs> like before 1994, kids were placed almost anywhere. That's why if you watch those old, like old movies, when it talks about foster care, the kid is almost always of a different race. Mm-hmm. You, like it's always like, it's like, there it was, it's like, it was like, uh, it was like a trope on TV or movies. Yep. It was always a black kid or a Latin kid, sometimes an Asian kid. Um, we watch the Umbrella Academy now. Mm hmm. There's all these brown kids, Diego, and, um, you know, what's the other one's name I'm thinking about? Um, the black girl. Yeah, I don't know her name. Right. I can't remember either. But then Ben is the age. Like, there's, it's always that. I mean, if you look at the time it's set in, you know. Anyway. Um, so what happened was kids, like, they would, they would start setting kids, um, with, because they realized that things were going wrong, basically. Like, people were stripping kids of their cultural backgrounds. Kids who had been right. in, in, like, in it for 10 years and then removed from the home are now not practicing their religion or they're not eating the foods they're used to. So what they would do is they would make sure the kids um, were placed with people who were like them, like race, like ethnicity, um, because it, was, it makes this shift less traumatic. They still have the same, again, we talk about smells, the same uh, cultural stylings. They could still go to church. They could do all the things they could, you know. Right. And, but because of that, more and more kids started being backed up into the system. Mm-hmm. And so what ended up being passed, I believe, what was it called? Um, the MPA. What is it? Damn it. Help me out. You, you probably won't remember either. No, what no is idea. It you, you have more foster. Yeah. Yeah. Multi-ethnic placement act. Thank you. And <laughs> it was like MPA was a mean. And so what it allowed for was more kids of different races to be placed with people that don't look like them with the expectation that social workers and uh, agencies would provide them with knowledge and education to help them retain and maintain culture. Yeah, doesn't really happen like that. I was but it was say, like it doesn't really years. happen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really honestly, happen. Honestly, like if that. you have a good foster parents, they definitely will look into it, but it's right. not often that, but that happens. Not at all. But that is where so this is where we see again the sibling group number being high and the overrepresentation of black and brown kids. And that does not necessarily mean Again, that black people are inherently worse parents or anything like that. No, it just happens to be when you think when you look at the uh, the socioeconomic factors that f- that play into things where kids are coming from. That's what it, that's how it kind of lays out. Like clearly, there are more white kids in foster care, but like for the the for being thirteen percent of the population, there are more black kids mm-hmm. in foster care than there should be. Yep. But so this is why we see these brown kids placed with a white family readily. A large group of black brown kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that because I don't, I, I can't remember mm-hmm. what Tammy was. Oh man, I saw it one. But so that's what we see. And so that, that could talk to the urgency of what's happening and how it's set up. And we can also, we're also going to talk about in the beginning of next episode, um, saviorism. And, and like I gotta trophies. chill because I just thought yep. about that Facebook page. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. So we're going to talk about that as we talk about the stress and the strain and the trauma uh, that the kids suffer and ultimately the abuse. 
Absolutely. <laughs> and ultimately, the abuse that they do endure uh, at the hands of Jen and Sarah um, in the instances where people could have intervened. Um, and again, it's one of those moments where people believe that they need to mind their business. I just wanted to and- say that, like... Before we get into next episode, just remember, kids aren't a circus attraction. That's all I'm going to say. Right. <laughs> like, kids are not meant to be paraded out to, They're not to, a circus to talk about or show your goodness. Nope. Um, because, again, things can look uh, a certain way, but on the inside, look terrible. Um, so one thing I did want to say, too, is as uh as a foster kid who again has been through all, through kind of all parts of the system except adoption cuz i was again blessed enough to land with my aunt even though that wasn't great <laughs> um to watch there's a movie on amazon prime it's free um it was in theaters it was called it's called instant family and it's dramatized clearly but it's mark Wahlberg and rose Byrne, so obviously it is but i have never seen a more accurate depiction of what it looks like to be fostered um to go from the foster to adoption pipeline mm, with a group of three siblings going into three Latino siblings going into a white household. Mm. And I watched it as like a, as an, an event and an outing with a bunch of foster families. And when I tell you that we watched that and there was like collective tears mm-hmm. because it was so realistic and it was so true. Cause what they did was they collected the stories mm-hmm. of foster and adoptive families and they were represented in the movie. Like, the names were some of the same. Mm. Um, the pictures were of real kids in care. Like, it was it was a thing. And so watch that if you want to kind of get an idea of what what the, what the it looked like for these kids before they landed in the heart home. That is a good, that's a good ending in Instant Family. But some days it's not. So that's it. I suggest you watch it, D, before we do the next I episode because it's really good. So um, but that's it. I've got nothing else for this no. part one. No, no. Um, again, it's not. So it's not the the. I don't know the part ones that we're used to. It's not you know this guy was you know strangling birds and lighting <laughs> things on fire. But when you have a case that is strangling based around birds. foster care and adoption, yeah, you have to. Um, I know. <laughs> Um, but you have to be able to take care to to lay everything out because now that you know what it looks like and what was expected of the system and what the kids came through and what Jen and Sarah were, now you can know like how it feeds into. We're gonna do. A, I think yeah. we're gonna do a pretty good job of yep. tying everything in to what the actions that came later were. Um, we don't need eight episodes to do it. No, we don't. So, All right. No shade. But. Uh, Dee, do you have anything you want to say? Like, where they can find you on the internet if they were looking for you? You gotta put that underscore in first. And then you put D. <laughs> we know how my handles are not available because other people have them. So anyways, underscore D, and then another underscore, and then Isa, which is spelled I-S-A. You can find me on the Instagrams. Um, You can find me on the Twitters, occasionally talking shit. And pop in here and there everywhere. Where could they find yeah. you, sir? Yikes. Where can they um, stalk you, can... you? You know you want him. You know you love a shirt now. Yeah, I'm very much single, guys. Look, it's 2020. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. It seems it seems like none of us are, the way the world is looking. But Wow, that was good. Um, right. But hey, if you're, if you're interested, feel free to drop me a DM. But you can, you can dry in those DMs on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, my screen name is at, sorry, my screen name, how old am I? 
My handle is at Charnel B. It's C-H-A-R-N, as in Nancy, E-I-L-B. Um, I'm also on Snapchat, but you won't find me there uh, often anymore. But you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at What Did You Do Pod. Uh, you can join the crew on Facebook. Uh, what Did You Crew? Just search for that. We'll re- request it. We'll let you in. Um, I know recently, I can't remember who did it. Was it Jen again who did the, I don't remember who, they did the thread of the animals and there was like 80,000 comments of everyone's cats, dogs. I know, because first of all, I'm <laughs> bitter because my dog passed away, so I can't partake. I'm so that's that. <laughs> so I just sit um, there like a bitter but we're actually planning to get an, another one but I need one thing at a time we got a lot of things going on but I was thinking about getting a puppy okay. I love I, so, I, I want one so I bad. don't want one but I I want I, one I and I then ever... the one I was gonna get was adopted and I was sad so now I'm in my feelings <laughs> I wanna I wanna be I, I don't wanna have to walk them all the time so I'm gonna wait until I have a backyard yeah this is this um, is exactly Exactly my problem. Like doggy yeah. door backyard, that's exactly where I'm at in life too. Cause I'm fat yeah, and lazy yeah. and that's what it is. Um, I exactly. also want to say welcome to all the new people. It's just that, that in the top of the show, I feel like we got a lot of new listeners, so welcome. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that we sense. got a lot of I mean we didn't do like, you know, housekeeping, but we got a lot of new listeners, so welcome. Welcome to the fuckery. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the yeah, shit show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming. I wouldn't call it a. I wouldn't call it that, but it's no, a good we, time. It is. Uh, <laughs> but if yeah, I'm involved, thank you guys. It might be a shit show, though. I don't know. What'd you say? If I'm involved, it might be a shit show. It just well, depends. this is why I'm here because <laughs> he balances I, me. <laughs> someone's got to shovel it, right? That's what the Hamilton says. Uh, but yeah. the Hamilton—that's what Hamilton. That's what the Hercules Mulligans. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. guys, it's been real. Um, again, check out for this next week. Um, it will drop next week. If you, even if you guys have to tweet me or DM me every day to say you best not, you best not be messing with this episode, ho. I will do it. <laughs> um, I've already, we've already got the outlines laid out, so it's not like we have to do any I more research. I have two outlets or, over the show. It's yeah, so she's ridiculous. Again, right? Someone's shoveling it over here. So, <laughs> you guys be well. Um, take care of yourselves. Please stay, stay sanitized and covered up, uh, in public. Uh, I got a mask to match the most of my outfits. Amen. Good for you. So stay healthy. And until next week, bye. Bye.